desperate to have her. Madonna is Susan. Rosanna Arquette is Roberta. I'm not Susan. I'm a housewife, and I live in Fort Pee, New Jersey. How Roberta gets to play Susan, and Susan gets to play around. Wanna play? Is the story of desperately seeking Susan. Come on. Rated PG-13. Now playing. Starts Friday, April 12th at additional theaters near you. Welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's show because we're talking Desperately Seeking Susan, which means I am desperately seeking a co-host in Rosalie Lewis. Woohoo! How are you? Yay. I am doing great. I'm very excited to be recording this. Uh, we had... Planned to do it a couple weeks ago, and then um, I got a special test result back um, mm -hmm, diagnosing mm -hmm. me with COVID. So that was not fun, but I'm back and hopefully better than ever. And I'm very excited to talk Madonna and to talk Desperately Seeking Susan. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. And I had to rewatch the movie because uh, it was a couple weeks ago and I kind of forgot some stuff. So now I've seen this movie twice in like three weeks. I mean, you should be doing that anyway, really. <laughs> um, so we are going to talk Desperately Seeking Susan in just a little bit. But first, I will ask you, Rosalie, have you seen anything good lately? Have I ever? Well, we are wrapping up uh, November today. So I've watched a lot of film noir over the last month. So I'll tell you some of the highlights. I won't tell you every single one because okay. that would take forever. <laughs> but um, I would say my favorite classic noir that I watched for the first time was The Big Combo. And that one, I don't know if you've seen it, but it is super good and also fairly influential. A lot of people would say that, and I would agree, that it influenced Tarantino for Reservoir Dogs specifically. Um, it's directed by Joseph Lewis, and it's just, if you haven't seen it, it's definitely a must-see, and I can't believe it took me this long um, but there's some really great twists. There's uh, some, I would say, for their time, rather violent torture scenes, including a scene where they torture a cop, including like playing really loud music through a hearing aid into his ears. So it like amplifies it, which was very reminiscent to me of a scene in Reservoir Dogs yeah. where the ears are involved. Um, and yeah, so lots of great stuff in that movie. Um, that was probably my favorite of the the classic noir. And then um, in addition to the ones that I wrote about at the beginning of the month for the site, I watched Sea of Love with Al Pacino. And that was a great example of a neo-noir. Have you mm -hmm. seen that one, Patrick? I have. I've never seen the big combo. So thank you for putting that on my radar. But I have seen Sea of Love. Yeah, it's excellent. Um, I would say it's up there in my probably top three Pacino performances. It's a little bit more restrained than what a lot of his eighties movies ended up looking like. Um, the plot is interesting and it's, you know, it's a really well-made example of a neo-noir, which I love those. So I was very excited for that. There were, um, there were a few better eighties femme fatales than Ellen Barkin. I agree. I don't know why she isn't in more stuff these days. I mean, 
I do because Hollywood sucks. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, no, she was absolutely fantastic in the movie and definitely kept me guessing right till the end of whether or not we should be trusting her. So I highly recommend that one if you can find it. Um, another one that I watched that I had been meaning to catch up with for a really long time was Sexy Beast. Oh, sure. And, of course, uh, that's, you know, Ben Kingsley. And uh, he is ferocious and insane and awesome in the movie. And I really liked it. And it's also a little bit sweeter than I was expecting um, for a movie called Sexy Beast. And uh, I liked that about it, too. It's um, If you haven't seen it, it's a, a movie about sort of like a retired gangster safe cracker guy he's living in spain with his wife and his neighbor pool boy who's you know friends with him or whatever and all is great and then ben kingsley shows up and just kind of like ruins everything by basically demanding that he take this job back in england and he doesn't really want any part of it but uh ben kingsley's not one to take no for an answer so um definitely a great movie a very like fast-paced movie um, I think it's like 80 minutes, um, and so it goes pretty quickly, and it's it's really compelling stuff. I just rewatched that one maybe a month or two ago and forgot how much I liked it, how great the Ben Kingsley performance is. Um, and it's Jonathan Glazer, who has only made, I think, three movies. He made this yeah, and this Birth, Birth and, and Under the Skin, Under the Skin right? which is like one of the yeah, best movies of the not- 2000s. Oh, no, I disagree. <laughs> oh, no, okay. Uh, no, actually, Not a I'm fan? probably like, the only person that doesn't like that movie. Um, okay. And I love Scarlett Johansson, and I really wanted to like it, but it wasn't for me. No, so maybe I'll revisit it. Um, I need to see Birth. That's one that's still on my radar. Birth is probably my least favorite of the three, but that's not to say that there isn't a lot of interesting stuff in it. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely need to catch up with that one. Um, another one that I watched for the first time ever, not a noir, was Apollo 13. So this one, I've been, I know I've been meaning to watch it. <laughs> I don't know how I hadn't seen it. I um, love movies. I love Tom Hanks. And I somehow had never seen this movie. So we watched it when I was recovering from quarantine. And it was like the perfect movie to watch when you're like just coming out of that sickness kind of thing and you need some like comfort movie but you don't want to watch something you've seen already yeah it's perfect for that so i probably don't need to tell you how great it is but uh what's your opinion of apollo 13 patrick you know weirdly i don't think i've seen it since the theater so it's been 25 years since i saw it i really liked it at the time and thought you know that's probably ron howard's best movie uh, yeah. And then I don't think I've seen it since then. And I know for a lot of people, this is one of their favorite movies. This is a movie that people come back to again and again and again. Um, yeah. I really loved it when I saw it, but I haven't revisited it. So this conversation has inspired me to do so. Yeah, I think you should definitely revisit it. Um, for one thing, it's got Bill Paxton, who right. is always wonderful. Yeah. And Kevin Bacon and Gary Sinise and Ed Harris. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Also, um, Roger Corman plays a congressman in it, which is <laughs> unexpected. Um, so that's fun. But yeah, I, I could definitely go on about this movie, but I don't really need to because I'm assuming I was the only person left alive that hadn't seen it. <laughs> Finally. Um, what else? What else? I watched Inside Man. Have you seen that one? Sure. Yeah, that was the first time watch for me. Spike okay. Lee um, directs a Denzel Washington movie with uh, Clive Owen and Jodie Foster and Christopher Plummer and 
Chiwetel Ejiofor, who we actually talked about last time I was on the podcast. In this movie, he's also a little bit underutilized, but a little bit like more character development happens, even though he's a supporting character. So if you're, you know, looking for some Chiwetel, check out Inside Man. Um, it's a bank robbery movie that goes a different direction than I was expecting. So I yeah, definitely. I you know when I saw it, I wasn't crazy about it, and then. I was like, oh, this is Spike Lee just kind of directing this commercial thriller. And then we rewatched it, um, I don't know, a couple months back. We were on a big, like around the time The Five Bloods came out. And we yeah. were rewatching a ton of Spike Lee movies. And we rewatched Inside Man. And I liked it way more because I was looking at it through the lens of it being much more of a Spike Lee movie. I don't know why the, the Spike Lee-ness of it kind of went past me on on initial viewing, but watching it this time, I was like, oh, this is totally a Spike Lee movie, and I liked it a whole lot more. Yeah, no, it it was funny because when I first started watching it, I was watching it because of Denzel and Clive, and then I was like, oh, yeah, Jodie Foster is in this, and then I was like, oh, yeah, Spike Lee directed this, and then you, you start <laughs> to, like, see those notes of Spike Lee, like, social commentary right. and critiquing you know capitalism and whatever and uh yeah i really enjoyed it i was expecting more of like a oceans 11 kind of feel and it's not really that but it is it gives you kind of both like it gives you that sort of robin hood movie of a bank robbery but it also gives you a little bit more meat on the bones so yeah. it's vegetarian like that um <laughs> i also really enjoyed going back to the noirs um this world then the fireworks and this is one that I'd been meaning to catch up with for a long time, and I finally picked it up in a Kino Lorber sale not that long ago. And um, apparently, you know, this is one that the director, whose name is Michael Oblowitz, he's a South African dude, um, he had been meaning to make this from the early 80s through to 1997 when he finally did get it made. But I'm glad that it took a little while because I think the casting of it is perfect. So he has Billy Zane... And Gina Gershon, and um, it's just a really, like, messed up but great movie noir. It's based on a Jim Thompson story. He also wrote The Grifters, if you're familiar with that. Um, and it's definitely, like, a perfect film noir. I would highly recommend it if you can find it. And I think that it's streaming on a few different sites right now. I want to say it's on Amazon Prime and maybe Hulu. So um, This World and the Fireworks, definitely check that one out if you get a chance. That's another one that, weirdly enough, we watched within the last few months because I, too, picked it up at a Kino Lorber sale. Uh, so what did you think of it? Pretty like dirt it? cheap. I think you might like it more than I did. Um, the characters aren't likable people. <laughs> I should say that at the outset, but Jim Thompson doesn't usually write very likable human beings. Like he's sort of known for writing these really gritty right. fucked up characters. So don't expect to like the characters, but it is a very likable movie. If that makes sense to me, maybe not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah. I thought it was an interesting neo-noir. I'll watch Gina Gershon in anything. Um, oh yeah. And you are correct. It is currently streaming on Amazon prime. Cool. Yeah. So definitely check that out. If you have a chance. Um, another one that I found streaming on prime that I watched on a whim was Sudden Death, starring John claude Van Damme <laughs> at a hockey game featuring the Chicago team versus the, is it Philadelphia team in the World Cup, the last game of the series. I'm not a hockey person, guys, okay? But 
I am a John Claude Van Damme person, and I love the shit out of this movie. <laughs> it's so much fun. Oh, my God. Um, it's basically kind of like the Die Hard formula, but right. at a hockey game, and he plays an ex-firefighter who gets a chance to redeem himself in, in the eyes of his kids. Powers Booth is the bad guy. Choose scenery like nobody's business. It's wonderful. Highly, highly, highly recommend. Five stars. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite uh, 90s Van Dams, and it's uh, directed by the great Peter Hyams, who also directed Van Damme in Time Cop, and sort of that pairing resulted in, I think, two of the best and probably most commercial Van Damme movies, uh, certainly of his career. A uh, really fun movie. Once Once he puts on the mascot suit, all bets are off. Oh, my God. I know. Like, the weaponry in this movie is amazing because he just kind of like puts random things together and they're so lethal and it's like this guy he his job was saving lives before but he's really good at killing people somehow <laughs> um i never knew you could use for example like a dishwasher to kill someone but hey he makes it work um yeah it's pretty pretty awesome so very very fun very escapist like good times sort of movie yeah um and then speaking of like unexpected good times. I watched Adventures in Babysitting for the first time. And while I think I like it less than many people who grew up watching it, um, <laughs> I still found it fairly charming, even though it's pretty uh, pretty far-fetched and goes a lot of places that I wasn't expecting. So I, w I was sort of expecting it to be like, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead, but like, I don't know, like the Christopher Columbus version of that or whatever. Um, it's not like that. There's a lot of, it's more like Blues Brothers, but with a babysitter. I don't know. Um, it's crazy. It was pretty fun. And you also get to see Vincent D'Onofrio as Thor. So very well for that. <laughs> that is a movie that I definitely watched as a kid, but do not have the affection for that many of my generation do. Um, I like it mostly for the Elizabeth Shue performance. She rarely got to be a lead in a movie. And she's so great and so ingratiating yeah. and just uh, so terrific. I'm not crazy about any of the kids. Uh, I I don't like that whole 80s trend of like, there's people chasing us with guns in studio comedies. Uh, and this is big time one of those. It's it's totally fine. It's likable. I'll watch it if it comes on. I'm not trying to diss Adventures in Babysitting. But yeah, it's not it's not beloved by me. Yeah, so for me, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead still definitely wins. I'm running an unofficial, like, scientific poll over on Twitter right now, and it's losing to Adventures in Babysitting, which I think is a bit of a travesty. We'll see if it changes by tomorrow. But uh, I prefer Don't Tell Mom, but I, it could just be because I've watched that one the most times. Um, it, it's a fun one. But they, they do share one of the main actors, uh, one of the kids, Let's see. I think it's Keith, Keith Coogan, Coogan, I want to say. Yeah, it is Keith yeah. Coogan. Dishes are done, man. The dishes are done, man. <laughs> I've said that line a million times. Me so too. I, I love it. Um, but yeah, fun movie. Um, it was especially entertaining for me watching a movie that's supposed to be set in the, the suburbs and in Chicago because I do remember growing up. So I didn't live in the suburbs growing up. I lived in the country, but I was in Illinois. And I just remember hearing about Chicago in this vaguely threatening way. Like <laughs> it's a really dangerous place and we don't go there. And now, of course, like I'm, I live near the city and I, I used to go there all the time pre-COVID and it's great. Like it's not this 
horrifying, scary place. But if you watch this movie, it certainly makes it seem like you never want to go to Chicago because horrible things will happen to you. Everywhere you go, they force you to sing the blues. <laughs> well, that's the one part that's true. <laughs> no, um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty funny. So that was that was fun. Um, and then I, I have two more that I have to talk about. So uh, one of those is Atlantic City, and this is a Louis Mall film from I want to say 1980. Um, and it's just fantastic. Susan Sarandon is in it, and she's kind of like this young cocktail waitress who's trying to learn French and work her way up so that she doesn't have to work in Atlantic City anymore. And then Burt Lancaster is her neighbor, and he, of course, is much older than he is in the, the early noirs that you probably know him best from. Um, but the two of them end up crossing paths and form a very unlikely friendship, and it's, it's a wonderful movie. Like It just made my heart feel good. Uh, which is not something you normally say about noir. So I guess it could be a noir or you could maybe put it into just like a, you know, a drama category. But it's a really wonderful movie. If you get a chance to catch up with it, I highly recommend it. Have you seen this movie, Patrick? I have. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, really, really good. Uh, a feel good movie for sure. And then the last one I'll talk about that maybe you have seen, I think. Um, is Happiest Season, which was the uh, directing debut of Clay Duvall. And this is a, a holiday movie, um, as you might guess from the title. It's streaming on Hulu right now. It's I think it debuted either on Thanksgiving or the day before Thanksgiving with Kristen Stewart, Mackenzie Davis, Allison Brie, Aubrey Plaza, Dan Levy, Victor Garber, Mary Steenburgen, Anna Gasteyer, a ton of people, right? It's a, a who's who cast of, like, great comic people. And... Um, there's a lot of controversy about it, it seems, online with how the movie ended and whether or not one of the characters is worth redeeming or not. But I personally thought it was a great, fun, romantic comedy that, you know, it tells a, a story that we don't get to see told very often. So um, I quite enjoyed it. What did you think, Patrick? I enjoyed it a lot, too. It's, you know, it feels like a studio romantic comedy, which means characters yeah. do things that they probably wouldn't do in life and make decisions that they might not make outside of the movies. Um, but I think there are there's enough to redeem it. I'm only mildly aware of the controversy because Erica has filled me in a little bit. I try to stay offline as much as possible these days, but That's smart. she has... Uh, <laughs> told me some of it and both of us are just like boy people are being awfully critical of this movie for being a movie um yeah daniel levy gives a really great speech near the end of the movie that i think helps justify some of the stuff that i think people are having a problem with um mm -hmm. Yeah, he does. And I think if people really paid attention to that speech, they would get where I think that's the voice of the filmmaker saying, like, right. look, we know that these characters aren't perfect. They're not behaving how you would like to see them behave. But maybe you try walking in their shoes and you would do the same thing. Like, right, right. you know, um, I, I really think people are being a little more harsh on this movie than they would be on a romantic comedy about straight people because they expect a movie with gay characters to be somehow like above the trappings of a romantic comedy. But I don't know, like rom-coms are all about two characters who maybe do things to each other that don't make sense or that are hurtful, but eventually, you know, it all works out. And like, that's what happens, you know? Right. Um, it's not that shocking to me that like 
something happens in the middle of the movie that's maybe going to keep these characters apart, but then they work it out in the end. Um, so it, I don't know. Like, I understand why people are like won over by other possible romantic pairings that didn't end up happening, but I, I don't know. I think it's a little overblown and it, it's a bit hypocritical of people to be like, oh, this movie needs to be better somehow than all other romantic comedies that are set at the holidays. Well, I get it. Again, not to, obviously I can't speak for uh, the gay population, but I get wanting it to, wanting to hold it to a higher standard only because it's, it's such a, there's so little representation in big glossy studio movies um, mm-hmm. You rarely, you know, this is really the first, uh, not the first, there's been others. There was like in and out with Kevin Klein and the, but like sure. you, we rarely get big studio movies with movie stars that are, you know, romantic comedies about gay characters. And so mm-hmm. it's like, you want every at bat to be a home run because there's so little representation. So I get wanting to hold it to a higher standard, but I'm also, totally agreeing with you that like, yeah, it's, it's an imperfect movie about imperfect characters and maybe the fact that it falls prey to some of those conventional trappings is an example of progress. Like, look, even the gay movies can be formulaic now. Um, not that it's, yeah. uh, uh, I don't want to classify it as just a gay movie, but, uh, you know, a movie about gay characters. Um, I think there's an argument to be made for, you know, these two characters who people want to end up together to end up together. And I said as much to Erica in the middle of the movie, I turned to her and said, better movie. So-and-so ends up with, you know, who, right. Um, right. But that's not the way the movie goes. And that's fine because there's also, we're obviously we're talking around a lot of things. So it's hard to uh, make the points that I want to make, but like, there's a whole relationship that existed off camera before this movie started. And so it's very easy for us to say, oh, she doesn't deserve this character, but we were not privy to what their life together was like and perhaps worth saving. You know, maybe it's not worth throwing away for these pretty substantial mistakes, but people make substantial mistakes and are forgiven for them in the real world. And I think this movie represents that i just think in movie logic because we didn't see their relationship really before this you know weekend um we kind of forget that they had a life together before the cameras were rolling yeah and the little bit we do get to see of that life it seems very charming and sweet and it seems like they love each other and it's very healthy looking so you know i i think the thing I love about this movie is that it's it's really relatable to anybody who has a family who maybe doesn't know the full extent of who that person is. And I would like to think many people should be able to relate to that, whether it's to this extent or not. Like, it's questionable. But, you know, I mean, I think there's things about myself that my family maybe doesn't necessarily get. And that's fine. Um, and my partner gets those things about me and, you know, we have our own like shared language and experience and that's its whole separate thing. So 
I don't know. I, I think people are coming down a bit harshly on this movie. I think it's just trying to be a fun little movie. Yeah. It doesn't need to represent the entire, nor could it, it represent the entire extent of the LGBTQ experience. It's just right. not going to happen in like 90 minutes. So um, the great thing is that it it's a, you know, a movie that does represent one story out of many, many stories. And if you want other stories from that scope, there's lots of independent movies that you can find pretty easily um, that will tell those stories for you. I mean, just look to last year's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, for example, if you want to see two characters who, you know, maybe you like better, whatever. Um, <laughs> but some people just want, like, a fun holiday movie, and I thought that this delivered that. So. Yeah, I agree. I, You know, I would love to see a movie in 2020 that isn't contingent on a person being afraid to come out, right? Because it's mm-hmm. 2020 and we like to think, well, that's not such a scary thing anymore. But that's not true and that's not fair to a whole population of people who it is still scary for them to come out and it is still a difficult thing to come out. And again, that's not what this movie is. For me to say, like, oh, I wish it wasn't about her being afraid to come out. Like, but that's the movie that it is. So I have to accept the movie right. on its terms. And again, Daniel Levy's speech at the end makes it all worth it, I think, because he so beautifully puts it into words that I think people need to hear, uh, you know, from all walks of life. I think people need to hear that speech. And it really kind of summarizes what the movie is trying to accomplish, even if it stumbles along the way. Yeah. Well, and another thing I think people are kind of glossing over is that it's made by Clay Duvall, who herself is a lesbian and who came up through, you know, movies in the nineties and early two thousands and didn't always get to play, you know, characters that maybe represented herself. But one movie she starred in that I think everybody needs to watch if they haven't is, but I'm a cheerleader mm-hmm. with her and Natasha Leone, where you do see, of course, like a little bit more of an over-the-top portrayal, but it's, you know, kind of a portrayal of when the parents don't accept their uh, lesbian child and, you know, the kid gets shipped off to this gay conversion camp. And it's also a good romantic comedy at its heart, as well as being a satire, but it's we're not that far removed. I mean, that was, you know, 20-something years ago, and we're still not you know, banning conversion therapy in all 50 states. And we have a vice president who is in favor of conversion therapy. So anybody who thinks that this is unrealistic because it's about a coming out story, I'm sorry. Like, unfortunately, we're not there yet. Right. So we're going to see a few more stories like this and they are going to resonate for people. Yeah. Um, I was looking on Twitter. It probably shouldn't be, but I was um, just to see responses that, you know, people had sent to Clay Duvall because she posted something about it on her Twitter. And, there were several people that said this movie encouraged me to come out finally. So oh, that's amazing. That, I think that's amazing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's maybe the people that are complaining about it. It's not for them. That's fine. Um, but there are a lot of people that this is going to be meaningful for. And, you know, I think let's let them have their happy little movie. I really so, liked it. And it's a, a movie that I can see myself coming back to around the holidays in the future. Yeah, me too. I, probably will watch it again this season because there's several, you know, things that I'm like, Oh, I need to go back and rewatch that. Cause that was a really fun scene or whatever. So yeah, I think I'll probably be revisiting it again before the season's over. Nice. All right. Um, well, I'll try to keep mine brief cause we went long on happiest season, but that was one of mine as well. So that's good. We doubled up there. Uh, Erica and I watched speaking of controversial movies, currently streaming Ron Howard's hillbilly elegy. 
Oh boy, how was it? I haven't dared yet. Well, gosh, again, <laughs> I'm filled in mostly by Erica in terms of the online discourse, and it seems very, very negative towards this movie and towards J.D. Vance, the author of the memoir on which the movie is based. Um, and I'm struggling with that because I haven't read it. Erica read it, and she really liked it. Mm-hmm. And she keeps saying, but this was his life. Why are we criticizing it for being right. this specific portrayal of maybe Southern life, even though most of the movie takes place in Ohio? Uh, he right. was raised, I think, in Kentucky. Um why are we being so critical of that if this was really his life? And the truth is, the movie is not very good. Uh, anybody who watched the trailer can kind of tell that it's a little bit over the top. Um, we were commenting on how, you know, sort of garishly stylized Amy Adams and Glenn Close's costuming was. And then over the end credits, you get to see pictures of J.D. Vance's real-life mom and grandmother and they look identical. So everything that we oh, were saying wow. about how over the top it was, it was like, nope, this is exactly what they looked like. Um, I didn't love the movie. I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as people online seem to be saying. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't read the book, although I was interested in it. I remember hearing J.D. Vance do, I want to say it was Fresh Air. It was one of the NPR shows when it was first out and I thought it was interesting because I have a lot of relatives that I wouldn't call them hillbillies necessarily, but they certainly fall into that, you know, um, rural, not necessarily college educated, not necessarily, you know, going to rise above like blue collar wages ever. Um, and so I was like, Oh, this sounds kind of like people I know. Um, the trailer to me didn't look super compelling, but I'm still intrigued by anything that Glenn Close and Amy Adams do. So, and, and Ron Howard too. So um, I'm curious about it. You give me a little hope that I might like it more than other people. You might. Again, I'm not making a case that it is a good movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. I think the performances are kind of wildly uneven and I like Amy Adams a lot. She's doing a very specific thing in this movie. And Ron Howard is not one of my favorite directors. I think Apollo 13 might be the last movie he made that I really liked. But prior to Apollo 13, that guy was on a roll. I mean, he made a lot of really good movies that I really liked, including Splash and Night Shift and The Paper and Backdraft and Parenthood. And I'll even throw Willow in there, even though I haven't seen Willow in a long time, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, he has made a lot of movies that I really like, and so I can never write him off, and I'm always willing to give a new Ron Howard movie a chance. Uh, this was not one of my favorites. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate, but I mean, you know, he they can't all be winners, I guess. I, I think it's kind of ironic that everybody's assuming this is going to win a ton of Oscars, even though it's probably going to be one of the lesser performances from some of the people involved, but... I, no, we'll this movie will win zero Oscars and probably will be nominated for <laughs> zero Oscars. Honestly, like, I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. Um, although who knows, it could be this year's green book. Um, I watched a documentary called Belushi, which I won't talk a ton about because by the time this podcast comes out, JB's column will have run. So if you go to fthismovie.com, his Tuesday column uh, will be about the documentary Belushi and his thoughts 
echo mine. I might have been even less a fan of the documentary uh, than he was because he has an even greater affinity for John Belushi than I do, having grown up at a time when Saturday Night Live was really at its peak. And I think he saw Animal House like 200 times in a theater and uh, went to the city to meet Belushi and go meet the Blues Brothers in person. Like... He has this, this total attachment to John Belushi that I don't have. Um, and John Belushi sometimes is is one of these talents that has me scratching my head. Like, maybe you had to be there because I his comic genius is a little bit lost on me. I like Animal House. I like the Blues Brothers. You know, I like stuff that he's in. Um, and I like him as an actor. But in terms of, like, this singular force that no one has ever come close to reproducing despite people trying people like Chris Farley or Artie Lang, you know, people who try to be the next Belushi. Um, Nobody has succeeded, but his genius is a little bit lost on me. The documentary, I just don't think is very good. It's, um, it's comprised of audio recordings for a coffee table book that came out like 15 years ago. So there are no talking heads, um, there's just voices on a phone, and many of the people talking uh, have passed away. Um, there's clips of Belushi. Those are fun to watch. There are some letters that he wrote to his wife, Judy, that are read out loud by Bill Hader. Um, and then there's these little animated segments, because every documentary now has to have little animated segments to fill it out. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't come together for me. I would much rather see a bunch of talking heads, you know appreciating John Belushi rather than what this movie tries to be, which is like trying to understand him, but I don't think comes very close. Um, I didn't think it was very good. Hmm. Yeah. I have to say I've never been able to get into the Belushi groove. I'm not sure if I just didn't, you know, come of age watching them. And so I, I will never really appreciate them. That's probably part of it. Um, part of it might just be like, he's not my sense of humor, yeah. but, um, I mean, I'm curious about this. I have heard a little bit about it and I remember being intrigued and thinking, oh, maybe this will change my mind. So maybe not. Um, but I'm glad it exists. It's always interesting to sort of dig up the archival stuff and get a second look at, at people that we never got to fully know right. while they were alive. So, um, I rewatched Sophia Coppola's The Beguiled which I hadn't seen since it first hit Blu-ray and DVD because I had just recently watched her latest movie on the rocks and was a little bit underwhelmed by it. And I was thinking back to the beguiled because I think when I saw it, I was kind of underwhelmed by, by it as well. Having been a huge fan of the original Don Siegel movie. Me too. Um, are you a fan of the Sofia Coppola one? So I watched the original about a week before I saw Sophia's in the theater and I was so hyped on Sophia's before I saw the original <laughs> and then I saw hers and I was like a little bit underwhelmed um so I do need to revisit it did you feel like it was better the second time yeah I liked it way more this time maybe a little bit more distanced from the original mm-hmm. um because the original is so much about the Clint Eastwood character and it hers is, yeah. is so much about the women Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of liked, you know, seeing the same story told from a different point of view. Um, it's insanely 
gorgeously photographed. It's all natural light, and it's just so mm-hmm. the production design and the costuming and the lighting, everything is so beautiful. Uh, yeah, I really liked it this time. I, I I was too hard on it the first time. I think that's encouraging. I do remember liking the way it looked, and I did think the performances were good. But for for myself, like I'm usually so high on her movies that when that one didn't quite live up to my expectations i was super bummed yeah so i do need to go back and visit it and then i can't believe i haven't seen on the rocks yet we were gonna watch it when it first came out and we still haven't so um i need to get on that yeah as a sofia coppola fan it's definitely worth seeing you know yeah for sure um two more quickly one i finally saw the new mutants and can confirm that it exists I was just going to ask, so it does exist. <laughs> it's a movie that you can actually watch. It has a beginning, middle, and an end. Um, I just today watched, I think it was the Honest trailer for New Mutants, and they referred to it as the fourth best superhero movie of 1996. And that's <laughs> pretty accurate. Uh, it's okay. barely a movie. It has a cast of about six Um the climax is kind of ridiculous. You don't really get to know the characters. You barely get to see their powers in action. Uh, it is really, really undercooked. The only one in the movie who was, to me, giving a performance of any kind is Anya Taylor-Joy, who's basically good in everything she shows up in. I haven't watched The Queen's Gambit yet on Netflix, but I hear it's very good. Uh, and I will be watching it at some point just for her. She breathes life into the New Mutants. Everything else, uh, again, to borrow a phrase from the Honest trailer, feels like the pilot to a to a, like a CW show that didn't get picked up. Interesting. Yeah, I was skeptical about it, even though I do love the X-Men movies overall, um, but I feel like they've been a bit of a diminishing return situation for a while now so curious about it i'll probably watch it eventually but uh not in any hurry yeah no when it hits like hbo then you can watch it right, but, right. um and then finally i cracked open the new arrow blu-ray of kevin smith's mall rats Ooh. uh that that movie's not very good like <laughs> i like it oh no I like it. I do. I haven't watched it in a long time, to be fair, but I remember loving it. So I, I like it, and I can watch it anytime. But like, uh-huh. I feel like objectively, it is not a very good movie. It is not put together very well. A lot of the jokes don't land. Uh, again, he was I don't know twenty four when he made it. You know, this was his sophomore effort, and he was making a movie for six million dollars when he wanted to make a movie for you know sixty thousand dollars, basically. Um, it gave us Jason Lee for which I will ever be Mm -hmm. grateful. Um, I just, I find it fascinating that I think more than any other movie, Mallrats is the movie for which Kevin Smith is beloved. I think if you ask a lot of his fans, that's the movie that they would point to as either the one that made them fall in love with him or their favorite of all of his movies. And I just think he's done such better work. I don't know how you feel about Kevin Smith. So my very first encounter with Kevin Smith is still my favorite, and that is Dogma. And I don't think anybody else probably loves that movie the way that I love it, but it it was the first one. I came from a very deeply religious background, and seeing that movie at the time that I did, 
it was very formative for me. So I will always love him for that. Uh, I watched Clerks and I loved it because I worked retail at the time and I could super relate to some yeah. of the characters situations. Um, and I loved Mallrats because, you know, it was another movie with some of the same characters in that same feel. Looking back, I don't know that I could explain in a logical way why I love Mallrats because I think it's more a series of like funny quips and you know memeable situations and I still say that kid is back on the escalator like all the time (laughs) you know like it's one of those movies that made its way into my vernacular immediately um but yeah I don't know if it's a good movie I don't know if it holds up but when I think back on it I laugh so I think in that way it works um and then I did not really care for Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. I hated Clerks 2. Um, Jersey Girl was okay. I don't hate it. I think it's fine. And I love Carlin, so I'll give it a little bit of a pass. And I loved Red State. And then that's about where it ends for me with, with Kevin Smith. I haven't really kept up with his stuff after that. Okay. Yeah, it's, you know, I enjoy Mallrats. And so any movie that somebody enjoys is more or less a good movie, right? Like, mm-hmm. so. I don't mean to say that it's a bad movie. I know I started this conversation by saying like that movie's not good. Um, I'm just fascinated by it because I think it's maybe his most poorly made movie. Um, and I think just a lot of the stuff falls flat. Uh, but there's, I, I could just as easily sit here and point to a bunch of stuff that's really great in it. You know, uh, again, chief among them, Jason Lee's performance, which is, crazy performance uh in the best way and honestly like i think about it he really shouldn't be likable in that movie like i should totally side with his girlfriend but i don't right it's because it's jason lee exactly possibly impossibly charismatic and even though he's a complete like little shit really in it he's still likable i don't know i can't explain it no i'm with you all the way um I'm less inclined to like, is it Jeremy London, Jason London? I don't know which London brother. It's Jeremy London. Um, I think it's Jeremy, yeah. I don't think he delivers Kevin Smith's dialogue especially well, and so I struggle when he's on screen. I do remember liking it that it had more of Jay and Silent Bob because they weren't in Clerks as much. Right. So I remember being excited to see them, like, get a little bit more room to breathe. But it very much depends on if you really love Jay and Silent Bob as characters or you just sort of put up with them because you like Kevin Smith. And Jay, uh, according to the special features going all the way back to the original DVD, was very nearly recast with either Seth Green or Brecken Meyer. The studio wanted one of those two. And Jason Mewes had to fight to play himself (laughs) in a movie. That is ridiculous. Um, I mean, I love both those dudes, but they're not. They're not Jay. And both of them said as much. Like, they wanted the job because they needed a job, but both of them were like, we feel uncomfortable about auditioning for this because he's clearly the guy. Yeah. Yeah, Anyway, uh, let's move back to 1985 and let's talk Desperately Seeking Susan. Uh, Rosalie, just for those of you listening at home, currently has a life-size stand-up of Madonna in Desperately Seeking Susan right behind her. Uh, so it's like I'm reliving the movie. 
Exactly. She's going to make sure that we don't say anything she doesn't want us to say. <laughs> um, credit where credit's due. This is Andy's standy, not mine, but I do love it, and I'm super excited that I have it in the house with me. It's pretty yeah. awesome. Yes, absolutely. Someday I'll have um, to introduce it to my Nicolas Cage stand-up. I know. Got to get these Who two together. Yeah. Sharks <laughs> are going to fly at that point. Um, so I thought about doing this, A, because I had recently gotten the Blu-ray from a Kino Lorber sale, and B, because it's directed by Susan Seidelman, who directed Smithereens, which was, was it your my, first? My first feature ever on the site. That's yes. what I thought. Uh, it is. Yeah, Rosalie's first piece was on the movie Smithereens, which was also directed by Susan Seidelman. So I thought, what a perfect match to talk about Desperately Seeking Susan. And then I found out you're a huge fan of this movie. I am a huge fan of this movie. I watched it because I was really high on Smithereens. And this was the follow-up that Susan Seidelman directed after that. And it was also set in New York. And it also followed a character from New Jersey. And so there were certain little like connections, even though they're not necessarily set in the same universe. It kind of felt like they were of a piece. Um, so yeah, I love this movie. I love that it somehow through Kismet involved starring Madonna in her debut role, just as her, you know, like a Virgin album was coming out. And so it pushed the movie to stardom. It pushed Madonna to stardom, even though arguably she was probably going to break out anyway. Um, but it was made like a low budget movie in a lot of ways. I think it only cost like five or $6 million for them to make. So it was a big step up from the 16 millimeter, you know, stuff that was shot in black and white and all gritty from, you know, the smithereens days. But it was definitely a little bit more money that Susan Seidelman was working with and bigger names, but still not superstars at that point. Uh, Rosanna Arquette, I think, had been in, uh, I want to say like a John Sayles movie, maybe. Um, Baby, it's you. Baby, but it's you. And she had done she After Hours. Yeah, but she wasn't like super, super well known at the time. And. From what I was reading, I think originally the studio wanted to cast bigger names. Like I saw names like Diane Keaton and Goldie Hawn and Bruce Willis was going to play, you know, one of the characters. So it could have gone a very different direction. But I think they they cast just the right people in this movie. Well, I so I didn't realize until I started reading a little bit about it that Madonna wasn't Madonna at the time that the movie yeah. went into production. I thought this was a movie that existed partly to capitalize on Madonna's iconography. Um, but it just so happened that she was like a neighbor of Susan Seidelman and, yep. and she really wanted her in the movie, which is maybe one of the best casting decisions ever because I won't say the movie doesn't work without Madonna, but Madonna's a big part of why the movie works. And it's not because it's such a great performance. It's because of the iconography of Madonna, like Madonna bringing Madonna to this role elevates the movie uh, beyond just being this, you know, little movie from 1985 beyond being this time capsule. It becomes this timeless thing uh, because it is the first starring role for Madonna. And the fact that she recognized just how special and unique and what a star Madonna was uh, is really, really a credit to d the director. Yeah, I agree, because I think, you know, some of the names that, that are kind of bandied about as oh, this person could have been Susan were like Melanie Griffith, who was a huge star and 
probably would have been fine in the role, but it wouldn't have been the same. You know, it, it would be another Melanie Griffith performance. And, you know, people like Goldie Hawn. Yeah, she's great, but she would have brought the Goldie Hawn thing. I think when you look back on this movie and you see, you know, the character of Roberta wanting to be Susan, you can totally understand because back in the, you know, 1985 era, like who didn't want to be Madonna or be right, with right. Madonna? So it's very relatable in a way that I think had it been somebody else, I guess Suzanne Vega auditioned for it too. Um, that would have been weird. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> like Jennifer Jason Lee was up for the part. Like yeah. so many people. Ellen Barkin uh, once again. Exactly. And like, yes, I love those actresses. I think they're phenomenally talented. But there's something about that right place, right time kismet of having Madonna just as she was on the verge of breaking out that makes this movie, like you said, it's timeless. Because the character isn't written to be very much. She's a symbol, right? And um, we don't know a ton about her, except she does her own thing. And scene after scene, we get that idea drilled into our heads. This character does her own thing. She is a free spirit. Mm -hmm. She goes where she wants. She does what she wants. And when you make that... um, 1985 Melanie Griffith, I think you have to work a lot harder to get that point across. Whereas if you make it 1985 Madonna, we accept it from the moment. I mean, there's the famous shot of her drying her armpits on the hand dryer in the the bathroom. Right. That was like in the video for get into the groove. Um, I remember it so well. So the second you see that on screen, you're just like, yeah, that's totally this character. Right. Um, and you buy that probably that is who Madonna was at that time. 100%. Like she, she's she's at Danceteria, which is like one of the clubs where she came up. She opened for the Smiths there when they first played in America before she even had a record deal. Like she's running around in her, you know, like own neighborhood, which I think gives this a degree of authenticity that had it been made with somebody else or had it been made a couple years earlier or later, it just wouldn't have that same ring of truth to it. Mm-hmm. It could have felt so much more hollow and commercial and it's, it's not, it feels like a really authentic movie. It does. And part of that has to do with just how like authentically New York it is, which is one of the things that's so great about it. Part of that is, you know, seeing all of these character actors who came out of New York at this time. I mean, every face in this movie is somebody that you're excited to see pop up in a movie. Um, it's the locations, it's the music, yeah. it's everything about it, as you said, feels authentic. And mm-hmm. I think that comes straight from Susan Seidelman's experience. Yeah. Well, I was reading some interviews with her um, about this movie, and she said that, you know, she was very wary after she made, you know, such a splash with Smithereens that her next project, she really wanted it to be the right project because she said, especially as a woman, you know, she was, when she she took film school, she was like, there was five women in her class of 35. Um, So she knew that she was kind of an underdog, and she knew that a lot of times, you know, a sophomore outing, you're going to get overwhelmed by the studio because they're giving you money, but then they also want to like kind of push you around and push stars on you or push certain things. And you might not necessarily get your vision. So she really wanted to make sure that didn't happen. And she waited for the right script to come along. And when this one did, she was like, well, first of all, you know, she's like, I didn't name the character, but it's, it's named Susan. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of seeking me. And then, you know, she loved the fact that it was set in New York and she felt like she kind of knew these kind of characters. 
Um, and she mentioned that she could relate to Roberta because Roberta's in New Jersey, but she said, you know, for her, and it's interesting because Smithereens, the character of Ren, is also from New Jersey, and they both seem to be trying to, like, make it to New York. And she said, you know, I'm from Philadelphia, so for me, like, being from New Jersey, this quote I wrote down because I loved it so much, she said, it's a metaphor for being on the other side of the bridge from where you think things are happening. I love that summation because I think that tells you everything you need to know about Roberta. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think so much of this movie obviously is about wanting to be someone else, wanting to be somewhere else, wanting to break free of the trappings of your life. And I think it starts from moment one when we are introduced to the movie, we're in a beauty salon and mm -hmm. we get to see, it's like, here are the rituals. Here are the things that women are expected to do. And again, we have the Susan character who says, fuck you to all of that. Yep. Um, she would never go to a beauty salon, you know, the way that Roberta wow. does to be this good housewife. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the irony of that scene, She's it's her birthday, right? She's there with Lori Metcalf, who's her sister-in-law, who's great, by the way. Yes. Um, Everybody knows that Lori Metcalf is great, but she's fantastic in this movie. And the stylist is doing something with her hair, and she's like, oh, I'm not so sure about that. She's like, don't – and the stylist is like, oh, don't worry. Your husband will love it. Right. And, like, that is Roberta's life. It's right. fulfilling what her husband wants, what her husband needs. You know, she's kind of serving at his request, and she's, it, she's very lonely. I think it's telling that the movie she watches in her kitchen as she's eating her birthday cake late at night is Rebecca because that's another character who's just alienated from her own life and wants so desperately to be, you know, somebody she's never going to live up to. You know, Rebecca is, <laughs> is this looming presence in that movie, even though the main, the main character who we don't even get a name for, you know, does, has never met that person. So I think there's definitely some connections there. Have you watched that remake on Netflix yet? I haven't, but I'm curious, but I'm worried. <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> yeah, I love Harvey Hammer, so I mean, I'll get to it eventually. All right. Yeah. 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 I wanted it to be good, but then I was like, "But it's Hitchcock." Like, I don't know. I mean, I know you guys just did the Psycho, uh, right? Yeah. So you can do things with Hitchcock remakes, um, but yeah, I don't know. Rebecca's <laughs> sacred. <laughs> anyway, back to uh, desperately seeking yeah, Susan. Yeah, I will I say something somewhat controversial. And this okay. is just from coming from a place of personal taste. Uh -huh. I could do without the amnesia subplot. And this is coming from a personal taste of not being interested in amnesia subplots in movies. So this is asking me, this is asking the movie to be something other than what it is, which I recognize is unfair. And that's not actually what I'm doing. I'm just pointing out. I don't care for, I don't love mistaken identity and I don't love amnesia subplots in movies. <laughs> And this movie has both. <laughs> it does. Um, I understand your skepticism. I do think in some ways it's definitely like a, a movie that is calling back to the screwball comedies of the 30s. And in that sense, I think they did a lot of things where they'd rely on something ridiculous like amnesia, but it only lasts a certain amount of time. And then you bang your head again and you're back to normal. <laughs> right. like, of course, that doesn't really happen. Of course... You know, people probably don't wake up and think they're another person, but it's so fun that I don't care. <laughs> um, 
I don't care. Like that's it moves the plot along and it gets, you know, all these characters into these ridiculous situations and not quite sure how you'd get there in another way. I'm sure there is a way. But subtlety isn't necessarily what this movie is going for. Right. So I suspend my disbelief. No, absolutely. And and as you said, there's probably I can't necessarily think of another way that we get her with Aiden Quinn, you know, I, I, she's slightly less sympathetic if she's just lying and pretending to be Susan for the entire movie, right? So mm-hmm. by making her think that she really is Susan, she, we kind of let her off the hook and she gets to live Susan's life for a little while um, and experience it without the guilt of tricking people, you know? Um, right. Which I guess yeah. is a, a, a kind of a convenient plot device, but it works for the movie. In some ways, it's almost like a fantasy, right? Because, I mean, you know, everybody probably has those moments where they're like, oh, I wish I could trade lives with somebody for a day. And this movie lets her do that. It's almost like it, it's a wonderful life in that regard. Like getting to see things from a different perspective and have people, you know, treat you differently and getting to do the things you're afraid to do under your own name. So in that way, I think it's a, a great device, even if it's silly and I admit completely unrealistic. <laughs> well, and I think only in a Susan Seidelman movie would we have certain things romanticized because mm-hmm. coming from my boring life, I don't want to exchange places with Susan. Like I'm getting, th- <laughs> I get, I, from the mob? I, right. I'm getting thrown out of diners and Will Patton is chasing after me with a gun. Uh, there's very, you know, I got to go work, uh, as a magician's assistant for 20 bucks a night at some skeevy (laughs) New York club. Like none of these things sound appealing to me, but in this movie, that's the fantasy that you want to escape into that kind of punk rock life. And, uh, that's, it's very charming. Yeah. No, I don't think that I fundamentally would want to trade lives with, you know, Susan in this movie either, but at the same time, it's like, well, there is that certain curiosity of like, what would it be like to live dangerously if there weren't necessarily right. consequences long term right. for me, you know? Um, the original, have you seen the original ending to the movie? I have the one where they're uh, riding camels in Egypt. <laughs> yeah. So it's fascinating because Weird. the movie as it is, you know, in its released form ends on kind of a conventional note with both women pairing up with their romantic counterparts uh, Susan ends up with Jim and, uh, and Roberta ends up with Aiden Quinn and that's the way that the movie ends. But in the deleted ending, it goes on about two scenes longer and we get a scene of Jim and Aiden Quinn saying like, have you heard from the other one? Nope. I haven't. Have you? Nope. Uh, well, who knows? They'll pop back into our lives at some point. They're kind of pining away for these women who have left them behind and have gone riding camels in the Sahara Desert. And part of me thinks the romantic in me likes the happy ending with the couples together and all is as it should be. But I think them riding camels together in the desert is a better ending for this movie in terms of what this movie is about and what it is trying to say that these women don't need men. Mm-hmm. These women need each other. Yeah. These women need adventure. These women need to leave the conventional world behind. And I think that's what that original ending is saying. So it's kind of a shame that it got cut. Yeah, to that extent, I agree. I don't know that I need them on camels, but I do kind of <laughs> like them. All movies should end on camels. <laughs> All of them. Every um, movie. 
every movie. I do think, you know, that Hillbilly Elegy would be improved by that. No, I have no idea. Uh, maybe it, it would. Ends that way. <laughs> Trust me, it would, it would be improved. <laughs> um, no, but I do kind of like the idea of this becoming a movie that's just about these women, like, taking their independence and just, you know, they become friends. Because in a lot of ways, it almost is a love story between these two women, For certainly for the Roberta character. It's funny because... You know, uh, her her sister-in-law is telling her husband, who's like, what's going on? She just got arrested for prostitution. And then, you know, Laurie Metcalf is like, did you know that most prostitutes are lesbian? And he's like, she's not a lesbian. And Laurie's like, yeah, but, you know, you didn't know she was a prostitute. So what do you know? <laughs> I don't think she's a lesbian. But I do think that there's, you know, there's some part of Roberta that is so curious about this other life, this other woman, you know, that she's been following through the personals for whoever knows how long. Um, it's partly wanting to be her, but I think she does need a friend. She doesn't seem like she has too many real friends in her quote unquote real life back in New Jersey. So, um, yeah, I agree that I like that companionship element and it's not necessarily there in the ending that we got. No. And again, I'm, I'm happy with seeing them end up together. You know what I mean? Like I was perfectly (laughs) content with that ending to the movie until I saw the deleted scene. And then I was like, Oh, that probably would have been better, but weirder, you know, uh, which is right for this movie. I think, you know, kind of the weirder, more offbeat ending because Mm -hmm. so much of the movie is kind of offbeat. So much of the movie doesn't follow, you know, total Hollywood conventions. Um, I know we already know the answer to what happened, but like, why didn't Rosanna Arquette get more chances to I lead know. a movie? She's so fantastic in this movie. And I was happy to read that she actually did get a BAFTA nomination for it. Although weirdly she got nominated in supporting because Madonna had then blown up to be such a huge star that even though she has fewer scenes, she, I guess, was campaigned in lead, so it's kind of funny, but um, <laughs> that's a side note. But, yeah, I love Rosanna Arquette, man. I I really hope that something happens where either she gets cast in some prestige TV drama or maybe, you know, she gets to work with, like, Greta Gerwig or something. I don't mm-hmm. know, but she needs to come back in a big way. I love her. I have always loved her and always had a big crush on both her and Patricia Arquette. Uh, I love the whole Arquette family, really. I love David Arquette. David Arquette's great. I miss nice Alexis guy. Arquette. Rest in peace. Yeah. Louis Arquette was always fun to see show up and stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, in the 80s, I really think Rosanna Arquette should have gotten more opportunities as a lead. Mm-hmm. And I, she had a few, some that I haven't seen. Um, there's some movie that Arrow just put out. Oh, shoot. What's it called? Burning something? No. Black Rainbow. I'm bad at keeping up with these things. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's called Black Rainbow. Um, that I want to check out just because it's a Rosanna Arquette movie. But uh, she's just really great in this movie. And I kind of wish she had, as we said, been given more opportunities. But as we know, Hollywood is kind of a terrible place, in particular for women. Uh, mm-hmm. and they get a very short shelf life. Yeah. Uh, One role that I have to highlight while we're talking about roles that we love her in is Crash. Uh, oh, my God. I I know that movie has some defenders and some people that hate it, but I love it. No, and me I too. And she's phenomenal phenomenal unbelievable in that movie. In that movie. Yes. 
just outstanding. Yes. And so. yes, I have a big crush on her in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's, yeah, she's really, really terrific. Um, is this, what is, what is uh, Madonna's best performance of her fairly limited filmography? Okay, so here's here's the weird thing. Like, I remember hearing a long time ago about Desperately Seeking Susan, and I was told that it wasn't a good movie. I don't know what people are talking about, but there seems to be this weird backlash, retroactive, because I don't think it was, I mean, back when this came out, like, it had a really great response from critics. It was on a bunch of top ten lists and stuff. Um, and then people always like to shit on Madonna movies. Like, people seem to hate Evita. I love Evita. That might be my favorite Madonna. Um, people don't seem to even like Dick Tracy is a bit divisive because <laughs> we learned during the this movie fest. Right? We did, and I will say, even though I am a Madonna fan uh, and a Dick Tracy fan, she is my least favorite part of Dick Tracy, and that is not necessarily her fault. I just think what she is doing is at odds with what the rest of the movie is doing. She's way That's too horny for that movie. Yeah, I don't know. I think she brings so much needed horniness to that movie. That's just me. But the rest um, of the movie is so not horny. I know, but that's the problem. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We're just going to have to agree to disagree on that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I haven't seen her version of Swept Away, so I can't comment on that one. But I probably am going to say this is my favorite of her performances. I just, okay. It's most authentically Madonna. Yeah. Even though it was her first one, like, it's it's the one that it seems like she was born to play. Yeah. I might go with A League of Their Own. Okay, fair. Yeah, that's very true. That's a fantastic movie. Because she's and great she in that. But I have not seen Evita, to be fair. Okay. I haven't seen her swept away either. I just recently saw the original. I had never seen the original in Erica and I watched it. The original is a drip, right? Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, um, I like that. I've never seen Shanghai Surprise. No, me neither. I mean, that could very well take the cake. I don't it know. It could. It could. <laughs> I have not seen Who's That Girl, which I know is another one that, I've seen you know, Who's That Girl. That is not and my favorite. Jury Out, or you like it? No? No, not so much. Even though I like Griffin Dunn and I like Madonna and I like uh, Big Jungle Cats, which it's, it seems like a match made in heaven. That movie, all <laughs> that movie has all of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I feel like and maybe I'm missing something, but I feel like she should have done a horror movie. She didn't do any horror movies, did she? Not that I can think of. She did uh, the great erotic thriller Body of Evidence. That's as close wow. as she came. I don't know if I'd put the word great in front of it. Uh, it is horrific, but not in a fun way. Um, uh, no, that is a, that is a much hornier movie than Dick Tracy. Yeah, but not even in a good, like, uh, it's just not good. I wanted to like it so bad. And I was like, I'm going to be the only person that likes this movie. And then I watched it. I was like, I'm not going to like this movie. I <laughs> like this movie. Um, I saw it in theaters. How? Oh, no, I'm sorry. With, like, a friend who I didn't ever really hang out with. Um, oh, no. It was a female friend. Oh, and no. We, we never really hung out together, and we were like, let's go to a movie. I think she chose Body of Evidence, and then there's just, yeah, I mean, it's uncomfortable. Like, uh, no matter how close yeah. you are to someone, watching Madonna pour candle wax on Willem Dafoe is uncomfortable. <laughs> Do it next to a relative stranger, and you're just crawling out of your skin, hoping right. that this movie will end fairly soon. 
Yeah, like the only way that could have been worse is if you were related to the person somehow. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm sorry. That sounds awful. That's uh, all right. Yeah, it's like, how can you go wrong putting Madonna in an erotic thriller? But then they did. So I don't know. I am going to revisit it one of these days because I haven't seen it in a long time. I mean, it's it's probably not going to change your mind. <laughs> it might not. It might not. But we did recently rewatch Color of Night, and I totally came around on that movie because that movie's amazing, and I okay, didn't so think it I was. I haven't seen it yet. I have it, and I've been meaning to watch it, but then I was like, it's a really long movie, and I'm not really sure if I want to sit through that long of a movie at the moment. So it's on my list, absolutely. And I love Bruce Willis, and I love erotic thrillers, so I'm sure. Then you're going to love it because it's a banana pants American giallo, and it's... Uh, it's very entertaining and again an amazing cast. Good. I'm excited for this. Yeah. Given me you've given me a lot of optimism about it. <laughs> uh favorite uh supporting pop-up player in Desperately Seeking Susan. I mean, I, oh, that's tough. I wanted to say Lori Metcalf. She probably is, but I mean for slightly lesser cast Stephen Wright. I was not expecting to see him yeah. when I first watched this. I was like, that's Stephen Wright. And he's talking like a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> he's not doing his Stephen Wright yeah. deadpan. Um, he's not. Um, but yeah, it was fun to see him. He plays a dentist that uh, Laurie Metcalf is having a good time with, shall we say. Um, so yeah, that was fun. How about you? Who was your favorite? I just want to say that I completely forgot Laurie Metcalf was in Uncle Buck. We recently showed the kids Uncle Buck. Ah. And I forgot, I remembered the neighbor character, but I didn't realize, I think when I saw Uncle Buck in whatever year it came out, I don't think I realized it was Laurie Metcalf, and she's really, really funny in that movie. Yeah. Um, probably John Turturro, mm -hmm. because it's so much fun to see a young John Turturro up on stage doing bad stand-up shtick <laughs> at a yeah, magic club. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also didn't realize that the guy in the bed at the beginning was Richard Hell. Richard Hell, yes, who was also in Smithereens who in was. a much more significant role. Right. So, yep. I got to see him do a reading. Uh, he wrote a book a couple of years ago, a memoir called I Dreamed I Was a Very Clean Tramp. And he came to a class that I was teaching at Harper and did a reading. Uh, wow. And it was very cool. That is so cool. I hadn't seen Smithereens at the time, so I couldn't even appreciate it. I just knew of him as a musician. Yeah. I didn't see Smithereens until after I read your article and was like, well, now I have to see this movie. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you watched it, and I'm yeah. very jealous that you got to meet Richard Hell. That is super cool. Yeah. His book is really good, too. I'm going to have to read that. That sounds great. Yeah. Uh, what else about Desperately Seeking Susan? Anything else you want to bring up? Well, I have to bring up the the costumes because i think that is also something that stood out to me about you know um smithereens is i love the costumes which makes sense because i think uh i maybe mentioned this in my article when i wrote about it that susan seidelman originally studied fashion so she and she brought that to sex in the city later when she mm -hmm. uh, directed some of those episodes but um this movie i believe um I'm trying to remember now the the name of the person, you know, the, the, the costume designer and set designer is escaping my mind right now. But it's somebody that has worked on other movies with uh, Woody Allen, like Radio Days and Zelig and some other ones. 
Santo Loquasto is his name. Okay. And he designed the jacket that she wears, and he designed a bunch of the um, set. And I think the sets, I mean, obviously they were shooting on location in New York, but they also did a great job, I think, with the set decoration and especially Dez's apartment where he lives above this Chinese restaurant. So there's like posters and murals in his apartment of like martial arts movies and stuff. And it's just so cool. Like it, it just feels so what I assume the, the New York in the eighties was like in the, the village where, you know, everything just looks amazing, even though it probably like smells bad there and maybe there's crime and whatever, but it looks cool. Right. And so like, to me that it d helps define New York in a way that, you know, we'll never see that version of the village again, but it's so cool that it's preserved on film. And I think part of that is owing to the set design. Yeah. Again, I love visiting New York of this period, uh, courtesy of this movie, you know, and she really knows the city so well and knows like the cool parts of the city without ever yeah. trying to seem cool. Like she comes by it so honestly. Um, and that's what I like about this movie is that it's like, not to use like a lame word, but it feels genuinely hip at a time when, uh, I think there were a lot of places or a lot of outlets striving for hipness in the eighties and manufacturing it in a way. And this movie comes by it very authentically. Yes. I agree with you a hundred percent. Uh, two more points I must make. Otherwise I'll be beating myself up later. Number one, I love the way Madonna eats a cheese puff in this movie. I mean, I just like movies of people, like scenes where people are eating food in movies. I don't know why it always has a certain charm. I like, become distracted a lot of times because I notice how they're just moving the food around, but never actually eating. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now I'm going to be looking for that. Do you feel like she was really eating the cheese puffs or do you yes. think she was? No, I think she was actually eating the cheese puffs. So again, Madonna commits. She does. She does. <laughs> and the other thing I have to bring up because I know other people have noticed it too is that a lot of people say Madonna invented the selfie because she takes a selfie with a Polaroid in this oh, movie. Oh, wow. So, um, and, you know, she leaves it on the bed by Richard Hell's head. Uh, so, yeah. Before Madonna he gets thrown out a window. Exactly. Um, so, she's a pioneer in many ways. Yes. <laughs> um, are you an Aiden Quinn fan? I am an Aiden Quinn fan. I fell in love with him in Benny and June. And I've loved him ever since. So um, it was super fun seeing an even younger, even cuter version of him in this movie. He is super charming. And he even has a fun job. He's like a projectionist at a, a, the Bleecker Street Theater. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he's great. He is a superhero in this movie, in my opinion. I really like him in this movie. I can sometimes find him to be a little overly intense. Mm. Uh, he seems to be an intense dude. Uh, I like yep. him in a lot of movies, and then other times I'm like, whoa, scale it back, Aiden Quinn. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this movie only needs you at a five. Sure. Um, but he's really good in this movie. I like seeing him do something a little bit lighter, like Benny and June. I mean, Benny and June has some heavier stuff, obviously, mm -hmm. in it, too. Um, but it is more or less a romantic comedy, and so it's fun to see him in that kind of a movie where he can be a little bit more uh, relaxed, for lack of a better word. Yeah. We don't always need him in, like, Legends of the Fall, you know? Right. Nobody needs Legends <laughs> of the Fall. I agree. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen that movie since it came out, but I don't remember liking it. Beautiful people, boring movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah anyway, yeah. Uh, I just remember Brad Pitt, he keeps coming home. 
He does, he right? He comes home a lot in that movie. They're, hey, Brad Pitt's back. And then an hour yeah. goes by and somebody else dies. And then, look, Brad Pitt's back. Uh, <laughs> that's my memory of Legends of the Fall. But again, a 25-year-old movie that I haven't seen in 25 years. Yeah. So It may be better than I'm remembering, too, but I just remember being very bored by it. Yeah. Oh, there's another scene that I have to point out, too, that I loved. Um it's in the cab. The cab driver is complaining about like, oh, they're changing all the restaurants in New York. Now everything's, you know, a sushi restaurant. And he's like, you know, I bought I bought some sushi, brought it home, warmed it up, cooked it. It wasn't bad. Tasted like fish. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good line. It is. It made me laugh out loud. Yeah. So um, lots of good little tiny scenes like that that like. They don't necessarily move the plot forward, but they're super fun and, you know, just kind of give you that little sense of like the characters that you meet when you're in New York City. Right. Yes, absolutely. That's that's what's kind of special about the movie is all the stuff that's like in the margins. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, thanks for talking about this with me. It was super fun. I have, You know what? I don't think I've seen... I know I haven't seen She-Devil. I haven't seen... Making Mr. Right. Um, there's a bunch of Susan Seidelman movies that I've never seen, so I need to go out and, and track them down now. Same here. I have not seen those either, and um, I heard good things about She-Devil, but I've never watched it, so going to have to fix that. Yeah. Anyway, thank you guys very much for listening. As always, go to our website, fthismovie.com. We have new stuff every day. Follow us on Twitter, at fthismovie. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and email us at fthismoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, Rosalie. This was super fun. It was super fun. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. Talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.